Pray with me. God, now that we have focused our hearts on you in song and worship, now that we've declared, God, that you sent your son into the world to declare your great love for us, God, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our spirits, God, to hear and be changed so that you might make us the kind of people who love like you loved, who show compassion and grace and mercy like you, that you would send your son as a sacrificial offering to die for us so that you might redeem us, God, as your treasure. Teach us, O oh God, this morning as we open our hearts and open our ears to hear you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, today we're talking about oxymorons. Oxymorons. We know we've got a bunch of uh, brand new English speakers here. Some of you are learning English as a second language or a third language. I'm super impressed with those of you who are like, you know, English is my seventh language. You know, it's... It's challenging. I have a difficult time articulating myself sometimes in English, but, it, you know, it's because it's my seventh language. I'm like, oh, super. You are very impressive. Uh, for anybody, anyone who knows more than one language, I'm extremely impressed. But if you don't know what an oxymoron is, if, if you're kind of brand new to the English language, let, let me t tell you what an oxymoron is. An oxymoron is a combination of words that are inherently contradictory, but they're placed together anyway, sometimes on accident, but a lot of times for effect. Take two words that are inherently contradictory and put them together. And so I want to tell you a story about an experience I had uh, where I really got an in-depth look at what an oxymoron really is. And as I tell you this story, you'll see some oxymorons pop up here on the screen. Here we go. I once spent a long working vacation in Happy Adventure, Newfoundland. Happy Adventure, Newfoundland is a real city and it is an oxymoron because there are no happy adventures in Newfoundland. Sorry, Newfoundland friends. I, <clears throat> I was going to use normal Kentucky, but uh, um, I had to change it for the Canadian reference. All right. Um, I was there long enough that I began to feel like a resident alien. I'd often eaten at a local international restaurant, but on one particular occasion, I popped in and it hadn't yet opened. I was the only patron in the joint. The staff and I were alone together. A server indicated that there would be a short wait while he prepped a table, but I didn't mind since I was listening to a podcast from my favorite honest politician. <laughs> the restaurant was informal. It's the kind of place that has paper tablecloths and serves beverages and plastic glasses, but I was too tired to care, dead on my feet from a long day. The kitchen wasn't prepared for an early customer, so my only choice for dinner was jumbo shrimp cocktail. I thought the shrimp was awfully good, which was a minor miracle since it's usually my least favorite seafood dish. It tastes like plastic. This is my unbiased opinion. I finished my dinner and took the leftovers to the hotel to save the rest. The following day at lunch, I grabbed my meal to reheat it, and lo and behold, freezer burn. Now, you might be thinking, good grief, that is seriously funny. But the story didn't really have a punchline, more of a crash landing, if you ask me. But can I clue you into an oxymoron that was noticeably missing from my little story or noticeably absent from my little story? The word oxus and morus, which make up the word oxymoron, both mean, or each mean, they mean sharp and dull, respectively. Thus, the word oxymoron is itself an oxymoron. <laughs> Just blew your mind, didn't it, some of you? 
Today we're talking about another oxymoron that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 10. It's up here on the screen, and it's good Samaritan. Good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't actually use those words, good Samaritan. That's a phrase that people who translated the Bible added as kind of a heading. You see it there in your text. But even though Jesus doesn't use the phrase, good Samaritan, Jesus chooses to tell his listeners a story in which he makes a Samaritan the hero. And everyone listening would have thought that this was the ultimate oxymoron, good Samaritan, or a Samaritan, the hero of the story. Because Jews, who would have been listening to Jesus, hated Samaritans. Has anybody heard that before? You've been around church for a little while? Shoot your hand up if you heard that before. Jesus, Jews hated Samaritans. Okay, they didn't get along very well. And that's absolutely true. But let me tell you a little bit about the background as to why they didn't get along so we can really wrap our minds around how much these two ethnic groups of people, Jews and Samaritans, hated one another. Remember King David last summer? We talked about King David, and he made some bad decisions in, in his, in his uh, time as king in Israel. So a once united and powerful Israel split because of King David's bad decisions. And it ended up that there were two tribes in the south, that was Judah and Benjamin, that remained faithful to God's covenant. And the remaining ten tribes in the north walked away from God's promises. They followed their own gods, they established their own capital, they built their own temple, they created their own priesthood. They pretty much abandoned God worship altogether, these ten unfaithful tribes in the north. So God's judgment on those ten unfaithful tribes in the north for abandoning the covenant was that the Assyrians came in and conquered them in 722 B.C., Uh, That's a historical fact. The Assyrians came in 722 B.C. and conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel that were unfaithful to the covenant. And rather than repenting those ten tribes in the north and turning back to God, they said to the Assyrians, come on in, welcome. You guys are cool and your gods are pretty cool, to be honest, and your religion is cool. So they accepted idol worship, thus further compromising true God worship. And they intermarried with the Assyrians, thus compromising the purity of God's people. So finally, those two southern tribes that were faithful to the covenant looked at the tribes in the north and said, you're not even part of the covenant anymore. You don't worship Yahweh. You're not ethnically pure. You're not even Jews. We're going to call you something different. So they called them Samaritans after the capital that they established that replaced Jerusalem in a place called Samaria. It is not an overstatement to say that Jews considered Samaritans the worst of the human race. Half-breed, God-hating, dog traitors who ran God's kingdom into the ground. This is what Jews thought of Samaritans. Now let's read the story. Pick it up in Luke chapter 10 if you've got your Bible. Luke chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, Scripture's up here on the screen as always. I promise I didn't make any edits to it. It's just copied and pasted right from the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can use that one as well. Follow along with me as I read in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke writes this. He says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 10, 26. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, that's the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, oh no, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, You go and do likewise. Can, can, we just, can we just skip the context here? Let's just skip to the conclusion. How about that? Let's just skip to what Jesus wants us to do. The reason why he tells this story is so that we would do this. Go and do likewise. That's his conclusion in verse 37. That's his punchline. That's, that's, the, that's the big key learning, or as we say at Baby Glenn, the bottom line truth that Jesus wants to teach us is you go and do likewise. In other words, you show this kind of mercy, show this kind of care. You love like the Samaritan loved, show compassion like he showed compassion, pour out grace like he poured out grace. You go and do likewise. So you may be thinking to yourself, the same thing I thought when I first read this parable. Thank you, Jesus, for a compelling little story. That was fantastic. I got it. I got it. I'm supposed to love like that. But here's my question. What does it look like to love like that? What does it look like that we would take these principles and work them out in our own Lives. What happens in this parable that makes it worthy of recording in God's book for us to read 2,000 years later? What makes this love, this compassion, so unique, so special? Well, what makes this kind of compassion, this kind of love, so unique and so special is in the details of the parable. It's in the details of the story. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack the specifics a little bit to look at what it means to truly live out compassion in our lives. And and here's detail number one that you need to know first is this, that Jesus doesn't just tell this parable out of nowhere. In verse 25, what happens? A lawyer asks Jesus a question. A lawyer asks Jesus a question. And for some of you attorneys in the room, you're like, well, I I picked the right day to come to Bayview. This is perfect. No, this is not this kind of attorney. By the way, my sister's an attorney. Some of my best friends are attorneys. This is not that kind of attorney or that kind of lawyer. This is a religious lawmaker. He would have been an expert in the Hebrew scripture. He would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. And some of you are thinking, I have those books memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I've got them memorized. No, not just their names, the whole thing. He would have had all five of them memorized. He would have been an expert in religious ceremonies and rules. In that sense, he's a lawyer. And so our religious lawmaker or lawyer asked Jesus, how does one inherit eternal life? I want you to know that this is not a real question. He's not actually curious. He's trying to test Jesus to see if he really knows his stuff. 
So Jesus is about to toss a test right back at the lawyer. And the way he does that is he responds to him with a very typical question that rabbis would have asked one another in context like this. So rabbis or teachers of the scripture would have gotten together and they would have talked about it. And one of the questions they would have asked one another as they talked about the scripture was exactly what Jesus says to this lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? They would have asked themselves that exact same question, that exact same wording all the time. So in response, the lawyer tells Jesus how he reads the law, and he responds to Jesus by reciting a portion of the Old Testament that everyone who was listening would have known by heart. It's called the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. Check this out. Every day in the Old Testament, the Hebrew head of household would have stepped across the threshold of his front door from inside to outside, and he would have recited this portion of Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema. He would have said this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And here's the lawyer's answer. In the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And our lawyer adds a bit of Leviticus 19 for good measure and love your neighbor as yourself. So everyone listening would have gone, yeah, I hear that every day. I hear that every morning. That's how the law reads, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. So Jesus simply says to this lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The interesting part about that word correctly is that in the original language in Greek, it's orthos. It's where we get our word orthodoxy from. So Jesus says to this lawyer, your answer is right. Your thinking is right. You have answered correctly. Your facts are right. But check this out. Jesus knows what you and I do, that right answers don't always equal right living, do they? Those are two totally different things. So then our lawyer asks another question, a final question, and it reveals that even though he's got his facts straight, his heart's in the wrong place. Look at verse 28. The lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? Do you see the shift? Do you see the heart change there? So he began with, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, now he's saying to Jesus, look, I know I don't have to love everybody, but who do I really have to love? That's what I want to know. Who is my neighbor? Jesus uses this self-serving question as an opportunity to teach the lawyer and not to embarrass him. Aren't you glad Jesus does that for you sometimes? When you ask goofy questions or make goofy decisions, I'm glad he's gracious in that way and he doesn't seek to embarrass but seeks to instruct. I love that about Jesus. That's why I get to sing stuff like, oh, how I love Jesus, because he doesn't embarrass me. He graciously instructs me just like he does this lawyer. And the way that he instructs this lawyer, this religious lawmaker, when he asks a self-serving question is this. He tells a parable. He tells a fictional story to illustrate a point. And the parable begins this way. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, check this out. The trek from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long. We talked about this before, but Jerusalem is set up on a hill, and Jericho lies to the northeast of Jerusalem. So about 17 miles, and that trek, that road, that path descends 3,500 feet over the course of 17 miles. That is a very long trek and a very difficult road. It was treacherous. It was narrow. It was surrounded by caves and mountains that made it very easy for robbers to hide on that road. So when an unexpected traveler came along, they could jump out and do something real negative. So it would be like I started a story like this. If I said to you, uh, you know what? I was wandering around Regent Park at 2 a.m., 
Or, you know what, I was hanging out at Jane and Finch at midnight on Friday, and lo and behold, like everybody knows who's listening to Jesus how this story is going to end. So no one is surprised when this man falls among robbers who strip him and beat him and depart, leaving him half dead. No one's surprised. So now this man, this traveler, lies broken and bleeding on the side of a narrow path. And it looks like help is on the way when Jesus indicates that a priest, a religious leader, enters the story. But the priest, according to verse 31, passes by on the other side. Then in verse 32, a Levite, another religious leader, enters our story, and he too passes by on the other side. Now check this out. Picture this with me because this is important. Uh, this is a narrow pathway. This is not like Bayview or Steeles. It's certainly not like the 404. So when it says that a priest or a Levite pass by on one side, they're not looking across like six lanes of traffic. They're passing by from about here to there. I mean, they could, they could see this man. They could almost, depending on where they would have been on that trek from Jerusalem to Jericho, they could have likely even reached out and touched this man, but they ignore him and keep walking on by. I've wondered why. Like, why not, why not, I mean, he's right there. Like, why, what reason do you have? Most Bible scholars would agree that this priest and this Levite choose not to do something. They choose not to engage with this man. They choose not to render aid because if they touched something dead, it would have rendered them unclean. So they would have had to go through some ceremonial washings and some other things in order to fulfill their religious duty or their religious obligation at the temple. In other words, the priest and the Levite don't render aid because it's inconvenient. They are much more concerned with fulfilling religious obligations than showing actual compassion to a brother in need. You ever hear those jokes that start like, you know, a priest, a rabbi, and Madonna walk into a bar? You ever hear those? And you know that like Madonna is the punchline. She almost always is. But you know, it's like the third person, right? It's always the third person that's supposed to be the punchline. It's the third person that's the example. And so when these people are listening to Jesus, the same thing would have been true 2,000 years ago. They know that that third character, the priest didn't do anything. The Levite didn't do anything. They know that that third character that's coming is going to do something. That's going to be the hero. That's going to be the conclusion. And so they're expecting maybe this is a Jewish layperson. Like, not a religious leader at all. Like, that's Jesus' grand finale. That's his surprise ending is it's going to be a Jewish layperson. Maybe. Maybe there are people in the, in the place and, and that were listening that thought, maybe this is the Messiah himself that comes along and renders aid to this man who's broken and bleeding on the side of the road. But the listeners get way more than they, than they bargained for in verse 33. And Jesus says this, a Samaritan, oh no, as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And everyone listening would have gasped. A Samaritan, the hero, a Samaritan showing compassion? You have got to be kidding me. So now Jesus has created our oxymoron, hasn't he? A good Samaritan. Jesus tells his audience that the Samaritan feels compassion for this man. That word for compassion there is a visceral, deep gut reaction. It's more than pity. It's more than emotion. It's as if the Samaritan sees the world from this man's eyes. 
The Samaritan treats this man's wounds with oil and wine, and he binds up his wounds with bandages. People would have likely not carried bandages with them, so what likely is happening is the Samaritan is tearing his own clothes in order to treat this man's wounds. He puts him on his own animal, which means the Samaritan is what? Walking? The Samaritan brings this man to an inn, and he pays up front two months. Two denarii would have been two months of room and board in advance, and that's accompanied with a promise that I'm going to come back and check on this man and pay you any extra bill that he incurs. Do you see the sacrifice here? Do you see the tender care and compassion? This, men and women of God, is what Jesus charges us to emulate. This is our example. So here's my question. If we are to go and do likewise, what exactly are we supposed to do? In other words, what is the DNA of compassion? What is compassion at its core? And so that's what we're going to do is talk about the DNA of compassion and pull three principles out from this parable that help us understand what Jesus is really charging us to do here. And so if you're taking notes, jot this one down because this is the first one. First one is this, compassion verifies eternal life. Compassion, true compassion, showing mercy, showing love, showing tender care, verifies, vindicates, proves eternal life. I want to show it to you in the text so you know that it's there, and then we're going to unpack what it means for us. Remember the reason that Jesus told this parable? Because he was asked a question, right? This lawyer asked him a question. Now, if I just read this parable of the Good Samaritan by itself, and someone told me Jesus was asked a question, and he told this parable in response, what do you think that question was? I would think, you know what, I'm assuming that someone asked him, Jesus, can you give us an example of how we should live? Or Jesus, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? But that's not the question that the lawyer asked. Look back in verse 25. Underline it if you're a note taker in your Bible. The lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a conversation about eternal life. This is not necessarily at its core a conversation about an example for living. This guy wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? So this, exam- this, is, this story is an example of how to live. Yes, it teaches us what compassion looks like. But at its core, it's a story that helps us understand how our eternal her- inheritance will most assuredly work its way out in our lives. Jesus says, do you want to know what assurance of eternal life looks like? The evidence for eternal life is compassion for others. The the Bible says different ways, other places. They will know we are Christians by our, come on, love for one another. Compassion, mercy, that demonstrates that you're a Christ follower. It verifies eternal life. And remember, when Jesus asked the lawyer, how do you read the law? Jesus affirms him. He says, your answer is right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms. He says, love for God inevitably, always overflows into love for neighbor. Compassion for others is the necessary outcome of a genuine love for God. It verifies eternal life. Let's turn it around and say it this way. If you don't have a love for others, you might want to ask yourself if you really have a love for God. Yikes. That one's a challenge, isn't it? 
I'll just let you deal with that between you and the Lord. That's not mine. If you don't have compassion for others, you might want to ask yourself if you truly have a love for God. Compassionate living is not just a set of expectations that Jesus places on our lives. Compassion, grace, mercy poured out onto others in need is the necessary and natural outgrowth of our experience of eternal life in Christ. And it indeed verifies that we have eternal life. So compassion verifies eternal life. Number two, the DNA of compassion is this. Compassion is empathetic. Compassion is empathetic. Let me show you in the text, and then I want to tell you why I chose that word empathetic. Look at verse 33. Jesus tells us that the Samaritan had compassion. He felt empathy. He didn't just feel sympathy. He put himself in the beaten traveler's shoes. He saw the world from his eyes. He felt within himself the same thing that Jesus felt when we're told that Jesus looked out over the crowds and he had what? Compassion. Same word. It's deep within himself. I was reading a, a psychological journal recently. I like reading psychological journals because I try to correct my own stuff before I you know, it helps me save money on therapy is essentially what it does. But I'm reading a psychological journal, and this, this person who's writing in the psychological journal uh, talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. So I want to tell you why I use this word empathy. Compassion is empathetic. This is what we learn from the Samaritan. So this person in the psychological journal writes this, said that empathy denotes a deep emotional understanding of one's feelings or problems. Sympathy is more general and can apply to small annoyances or setbacks. Can I just say it this way? Sympathy says this, I'm sorry that's happening. Empathy says this, I feel your pain. I'm putting myself in your shoes. Do you see that's different? I'm sorry that's happening to you. It's, it's a real emotion, and it's okay, and it's probably even good. But empathy goes a step further and says, I am going to put myself in your shoes. I'm going to see the world from your eyes. I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes, as the old adage goes. That's what true compassion does. True compassion is empathetic. And without empathy... Without feeling that compassion, without putting ourselves in the shoes of another, just as the Samaritan did, we can't feel or act upon certainly true biblical compassion. Can I just be honest with you? This is not something I do very well. Some of you who know me, you're like, oh, that's a shocker. Um, you're not empathetic. You hardly emote at all. Like I cry and it's like, what is this salty discharge? What I don't know what this is, you know. Like I don't do that very well. My wife does. She, she feels empathy. She puts herself in other people's shoes. Every personality type has its virtues and vices. This is just one of mine. So I want to tell you a story about when I failed miserably at this piece of compassion. Can I tell you? Okay, so at my former church, at Scottsdale Bible Church, um, I used to lead worship in a congregation where, you know, we would do music and then we'd do announcements and a lot of stuff like we did here. But the message was piped in via video. It was simulcast via video. We would actually TiVo it. So, uh, we, so you know, if, if, if the message had started before we were finished with our music, we would just hold pause and wait, and, and then we would hit play, and then we would all watch the message simulcast together. I used to mess with our senior pastor and say, we, we TiVo it so we can fast forward through the boring parts. Um, he didn't like that joke, but I did. So, um, 
So I, I was leading worship this Sunday, and we did announcements, we did all things, and it was time for the message to start, and I went and sat down in my seat, and the message started, and he's three, four, five minutes in, and I noticed that there's a child behind me acting up, like a three-year-old. And this little boy is just talking, 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 and he's whining to his mom, and he's walking up and down the aisle, and he's, you know, throwing stuff. I don't know what three-year-olds do, stuff, right? And it's distracting me. And I'm going, could you shut this kid up? Because I am trying to pay attention to this message on compassion or something. Whatever he was talking about, I'm trying to pay attention, right? Could you just shut him down? So I started to think to myself, look, as the pastor of this congregation, I probably have a duty. I have an obligation to kind of, because he probably is distracting others too, so I I have an obligation to like do something here. So I get up from my row, and I walk back to the row behind me, and I sit down next to this young mom, and I say, "Um, you know, is there a, you know, are you guys doing okay? Are you uncomfortable? Can we, you know, find a place for you to be so, you know, he's a little more comfortable? Just can, can we help you? It's essentially like, can you get out, please, is essentially what I'm saying. And this is the worst thing when, when, you, when you offer things like that to people and they respond this way, no, I'm cool. <laughs> well, like, well, this is bad, right? This is going really poorly. So then I decide, rather than going back up to my row and sitting down, I don't want to be as distracting as your child is being, you know? So I just said this in my head, not to her, right? So I get up, and I go to the back of the sanctuary, and I just stood in the back. So I'm standing in the back, and this three-year-old walks out of the aisle and walks directly back to me. Never seen this three-year-old before in my life. Never seen him before in my life. Walks up to me, stands in front of me, and looks up at me and puts his arms up like this. He wants me to pick him up. Now, if you know three-year-olds, that's not normal, right? You do the stranger danger thing and all that stuff, and he doesn't know me. He just wants me to pick him up. And it dawns on me in that moment, I have made a grievous error, right? I have not put myself in someone else's shoes. I have not shown compassion. I have not been empathetic. I have not seen the world from their eyes. So I pick up this little boy, and I wrap him up in my arms, and he's out on my shoulder like that. He's asleep. This is not normal. So his mom gets up and she walks back and then I notice, well, there's no dad with them. Oh, man. I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of a putz here. This is not good. So the mom walks back and, and stands by me and she's crying. And I say, essentially, not using these words, how, how can I walk a mile in your shoes? How can I see the world from your eyes? What's going on? Talk to me. It's more than a distraction at this point. It's biblical compassion now. Now, it was error at the beginning. And she said, well, you know, Pastor, it's, it's interesting because his, his dad has a really significant substance abuse problem. He's an addict. And so we'll go three, four, five months and not see him. And then he'll show up and spend eight or ten hours with him. And then he'll disappear again. And we won't see him for three or four or five months. And he showed up last night at about 8 o'clock, and he spent 8 or 10 hours with us. And he was so excited to see his dad, and so he stayed up all night just hanging with his dad. And so he's absolutely exhausted, and I'm really sorry he's being distracting because his dad left this morning at 8 o'clock, and we won't see him again for another three or four months. See the shift? See the change? So just like the priest and the Levite, your pastor was far more concerned about fulfilling religious obligation than he was showing true compassion put yourself in other people's shoes walk a mile 
in their shoes, see the world from their eyes. You know, we tend to judge that socially awkward coworker. We're short with the Starbucks barista when they get our drink wrong. We get frustrated with someone who doesn't behave the way that we expect them to, especially in church when we're trying to fulfill our religious duty. But Jesus says compassion is more important than that. See the world from their eyes. Show empathy. And then watch biblical compassion flow naturally from that place. So here we go. If I've experienced compassion from Jesus and I'm walking in that eternal life that he offers and then I put myself in somebody else's shoes and I see the world from their eyes, then it makes total sense why I would want to sacrifice like the Samaritan did, doesn't it? Look at all those things that he sacrificed. That's, that's our third piece of the DNA of compassion. Third component is, is, is compassion is sacrificial. Compassion is sacrificial. Look at all the things that the Samaritan sacrificed. He sacrificed his clothing when he rips them to make bandages for this man. He sacrificed his own oil and wine so that he's not refreshed on his journey. He, he puts this man on his own animal so he has to walk. He, he sacrifices money, two months of room and board to pay for a hotel. True compassion prompts sacrifice. So I just want you to know that as I preach, I've told you this before, but, but when I read the text, I'm not trying to come up with a good sermon. What I'm trying to do is be changed myself. I'm trying to find something here that applies to me so that I would change, that I'd become more like Jesus. And so as I thought about this principle this week that compassion is sacrificial, I thought to myself, this is great because I don't have a donkey, I don't have any denarii, and I typically don't carry oil and wine with me. I'm free here. I'm free and clear. Nothing applies to me. It's not true, is it? Some, don't, don't shout out some things I can apply. I got it. Jesus is working on me, okay? So I just prayed this week, and I said, oh, God, what, what would you have me apply? If compassion is sacrificial, what of mine might need to go on the altar so that I can show true biblical compassion to somebody else? And, and here's, what, here's what just God just kind of spoke to me this week. Uh, emotional energy. Emotional energy. Uh, it's tough for me sometimes as a pastor. I just want you to know, like, I'm not about to whine about being a pastor. I absolutely love my job. I love working here. I love uh, the ministry that God has called me to. But, but I, I end up having a lot of conversations with folks who are in need. And I love that. Like, if you're in need, please come to me. I love to pray with you. I love to offer counsel if I can. I love to just listen and empathize. Like, I love that. So please keep coming to me. But sometimes there are days when I think I have the right to reserve my own emotional energy for myself, focus it on my own hobbies or interests, or to be totally honest, focus my own emotional energy on myself. And this week, God just tapped me on the shoulder and he says, hey, bud, when I called you to follow me, I didn't add the caveat that you're welcome to reserve a little bit of emotional energy for yourself. That's mine too. Because true biblical compassion is sacrificial. I just felt God say to me, and when it comes to compassion, I'm calling you to put that on the altar. To make that sacrifice just like the Samaritan did. Look, I don't know what God is calling you to sacrifice. That's between you and him. You can work that out with him. I'm not going to tell you that. Maybe your money. Maybe your home. Maybe your time. Maybe your hobbies. And maybe like me and your emotional energy is what he's calling you to. I don't know, but God does ask him. Because that's what we're called to do as men and women of God, as Christians, to live out sacrificial compassion. One final piece. 
one more piece to this parable that's absolutely essential for us to understand. And I want you to know that a lot of times, as, as I've talked about this parable, even myself, as I've preached on it, I've missed this last part. But it's super critical, so listen really close. The critical piece resides with the oxymoron that we started with, the good Samaritan. The Samaritan as the hero. So let's do it this way. Remember the final question that Jesus asked the lawyer? He says, which of these proved to be a better neighbor to the man who was broken, beaten, battered on the side of the road? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? That's a very, very easy question, so we're going to answer it all together. Let's do that, all right? Which of them proved to be a better neighbor, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? On three, answer one, two, three. That's exactly right. Great answer. That's not what the lawyer says. Look at it. Look at verse 37. Jesus asks, who proved to be the better neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. You know why? Because the word Samaritan is like poison in his mouth. He won't even say it out loud. He won't even spit it out, much less believe that the Samaritan is the hero in the story. So now let me ask you this. Why would Jesus choose to make the Samaritan the hero? Because listen, if he was trying to instruct his Jewish audience now to show compassion to people who they don't think deserve compassion, show compassion, show mercy, show grace, even if they're different from you, even if they don't share your convictions, even if they don't share your religious background, you need to be showing compassion. What would the Samaritan have been in that case? Broken and battered on the side of the road, right? But that's not who the Samaritan is. The Samaritan is the hero why? Why is the Samaritan the hero? It, just nod your head. You, you understand the question I'm asking the scriptures. Everybody understand? Why, why is he not broken and battered on the side of the road? Why is the Samaritan the hero? I thought about it all week. Here's where I came to. Listen, this story is primarily about showing compassion. Compassion that verifies eternal life, compassion that is empathetic, and compassion that is sacrificial. But there's an important subtext here that Jesus does not want us to miss. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero in order to reveal, in order to pull back the layers on this lawyer and reveal that he is far more interested in what I would call self-motivated therapeutic moralism. Listen close now. The lawyer wants to do good things and show compassion to his neighbor in order to make himself feel better. He wants to show compassion in order to assure himself that he has eternal life. Remember, how do I inherit eternal life? Oh, who's my neighbor? How do I, what, how do, I do enough to assure myself, to ease my conscience? This is not for the sake of moving God's kingdom forward, and it's not because what God called him to do. It's therapeutic, self-motivated moralism just to ease his own conscience. Now, are we not that way sometimes? We create programs, we take offerings, maybe we even pray. And to be honest, a lot of times we do this stuff because Christ, not because Christ calls us to it, but because we want to do enough good to ease our conscience. Then we end up serving others out of pity, but valuing them as individuals, that's tough. That's too much. But this is the heart of the gospel now, listen close. God didn't save us to ease his conscience. He saved us because we're his prize. 
And because he values us, he treasures us. True biblical compassion looks like that. It looks like valuing an individual, not pitying them. Remember the command that the lawyer got right, by the way, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And now listen close. If you cannot see your neighbor as the hero in the story, perhaps it means that you don't value them, but you pity them. Even if you're serving them, even if you're showing compassion, if you can't see them as the hero, just as this lawyer couldn't see the Samaritan as the hero, it's because he pitied him, not because he valued him. And that's not what Christ calls us to. Just as God valued us, just as God treasured us, not pitied us, valued us and rescued us and showed compassion to us, we are to do the same to others. So you might be thinking, Luke, I do that. I do. I value every human being. I treasure them. They're a prize. Like I, I, every individual has value. That may be true. But can I suggest to you a little exercise and we'll really put that to the test? Let's give this a shot. Okay, verse 33. Verse 33, look at it. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Let's just remove that word Samaritan. We'll try some other stuff in there. But a gay man, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But a pro-choice advocate, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But an aggressive atheist, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Listen close. Is Jesus suggesting that you agree with these folks? Absolutely not. What he is teaching, however, is that Christ followers are called to value each individual as God's creation, to see them as a prize rather than a project. Are there individuals in your life that you would have a difficult time seeing as the hero? Perhaps it's because you don't value them like God values them. Must you affirm their beliefs? No. Hear me. No. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What he is teaching is that compassion values others. Compassion values others. It does not pity them. It does not see them as a project. They are a treasure in the eyes of God. And Christ now, in the ultimate display of empathetic and sacrificial compassion, died for that one because he valued them, not just pity, not just a project, a prize. God's love extends far beyond showing compassion so that we feel better about ourselves. True compassion values each individual as God's creation. And that is the ultimate and most glorious oxymoron. Pray. God, this is the kind of people, individuals, families, and church that we long to be. A church that lives out true biblical compassion by valuing others. See them as a treasure. See them in the way that you see them. God, to see the world from their eyes, to empathize and to sacrifice in order to show compassion. And we know in doing all of these things, they'll know we are Christians because of our love for one another and the way that we love the world around us.
Thank you, Jesus, for your word to us today. In Christ's name, amen.